The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 16th, 2020. On this week's show, Fangraph's Meg Rowley will join us to talk about the Miami Marlins hiring of Kim Ang as the first woman general manager in Major League Baseball, or for that matter, in any of the major North American pro sports. We'll also ponder whether this year's NFC East is the worst division in the history of pro football, and we'll talk about our nation's insistence that sports must go on no matter the state of the pandemic, and the state at present is bad and it's getting worse. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of Slow Burn Season 4. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Thank you for the cheeriness. We're going to need it. With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and upcoming Season 6 on the L.A. Riots, Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. Hello, Josh. Hello, Stefan. <laughs> nice even tone, more in keeping with the mood of uh, America. So one thing that we haven't mentioned recently is the fact that people can subscribe to the show. It is possible. There are various subscription buttons attached to various subscription services. And you can also rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. If you've just been kind of wondering idly to yourself, what is it that I just a, a lonely podcast listener out walking the dog, washing the car, just staring into space. What can I do to help Joel and Stefan and Josh? Subscribing to the show and rating and reviewing us in Apple Podcasts is a thing. Do it. Can I, can I say something about Sometimes we get emails from people and they really are touching. I've never like been part of a community. Wait, what am I saying? That's not true. <laughs> I've, been, I've been part of a community. But, it, you know, you a just really get community. The, a podcast community. There you go. And you just really get the sense that people, whenever people reach out, sometimes I feel bad because I'm, I'm always behind on emails. I don't know about the rest of you all. But when you do reach out and send us a note, we do get it. And it is actually meaningful. And we get ideas often from folks when they reach out. And I'm always surprised at the breadth of people that listen and uh, reach out to us. So yeah, reach out. Yeah, it's really nice. Hang up at slate.com if you want to drop us a note or suggest something. Stefan, you also like it when people are nice to us. I do. (laughs) And people usually aren't mean to us, which is nice. But I think that's because we are generally nice people. (laughs) We've cultivated our community as well. We live in a bubble, Stefan. We do. Good job. Good job by us. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. In 1927, the Cleveland Indians hired to run their team a veteran umpire named Billy Evans and gave him the title of general manager. Evans was baseball's first GM, and in the 93 years since then, countless others have followed, all of them men, until last week when the Miami Marlins hired Kim Ang. Gender aside, Ang's hiring is about as conventional as they come. She turns 52 on Tuesday. She's worked in the majors since she was 21 years old for the White Sox, Yankees, Dodgers, the American League, and for the last decade in the commissioner's office in New York. In a statement, Ang said, When I got into this business, it seemed unlikely a woman would lead a major league team, but I am dogged in the pursuit of my goals. Meg Rowley is the managing editor of Fangraphs and a co-host with our friend Ben Lindbergh of the podcast Effectively Wild. Welcome back to the show, Meg. Thanks for having me. Meg, the mood surrounding Ang's hiring is excitement about the first woman GM in any major American sport, tempered, I think, by a reminder that it took a long time for this to happen, especially for her. I looked, and the first mention in media touting Ang as the possible first female GM was in 1998. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, she um 
She is a baseball lifer. You mentioned that this is in a lot of ways a very conventional hire. It is conventional in part because she had so much time to accumulate an august resume with which to interview. I think that as fans of baseball and as analysts and observers, we can be unreservedly excited, right? Kim is wildly qualified. She is inheriting a roster that is very exciting, a farm system that is very exciting. She is in a lot of ways really set up to succeed and take this Marlins team through its next phase of its rebuild. But I think that we should be skeptical of any back padding that the league wants to do because you're right, this took This took an absurdly long time. I was joking with Ben Lindbergh that we're all going to have to learn some new names because I think that Kim Ang has just been the name that people have thrown around for years. Who's the first female GM going to be? There's an opening and we just assume that she's interviewing, that she's still interested in the role. So it is very exciting for us. And I think that it is a good monkey for baseball to get off its back, but we shouldn't let them be too self-congratulatory because there have been a lot of GM openings over the years and Kim has been qualified for a long, long time. Do you have a sense, Meg, of how seriously she was considered for jobs previously? She's interviewed for decades for pretty much, this is only a slight exaggeration, for like every open GM position you heard her name. And so was she just not the best person for the job like 87 different times? I I guess I'm sure that some teams considered her more seriously than others. I think that that's right. I don't have particular insight into all of the interviews that she did. I think that there were some that were sadly just for show and others that were much more good faith. You know, she moved into very senior positions on the league side as the years went on. So one of the kind of uncomfortable things about the conversation with her, I think because she was the go-to name was for a while, it wasn't clear like Did she want to be a GM still or was she happy having this very important, very senior role in the league office? I think that there were plenty of teams that really did consider her. But the fact that it took so long that so many other younger, less experienced men were hired to be general managers should make us skeptical that all of those interviews were conducted in good faith. Meg, sometimes when me and my friends are like, you know, looking at football and college football and you'll see like a black guy get a job and it'll be like, oh, he got that job, you know, San Jose State, uh, you know, something, you know, <laughs> we're just like, oh, they gave that brother the cleanup job. And so I, I heard you say, you know, that the Marlins, you know, they got the farm system, they, you know, they're in the playoffs this year. But isn't this still sort of a difficult job given, you know, the small payroll and not much fan support? I think that that Miami is a difficult market to break into. You noted some of the factors that have held the team back in the past. They're they're an odd organization because they have had sort of cycles of big spending that they have then immediately followed with periods of sell-off um, just as they're kind of getting close to contention. You look at the outfield that they traded away, and I think that if you're a Marlins fan, you'd be forgiven for not thinking the team loves you back uh, as strongly as you might love it. But I don't think that it's a as bad a position as maybe folks who are more casual observers of the game might think. Like I said, like their farm system is legitimately exciting at Fangrass. I think we have them ranked fifth right now in terms of their farm system value. They do have complications. It's not clear how they're going to be able to spend. They embraced some pretty significant austerity during the pandemic. So it isn't a perfect situation, but I don't think that, um, you know, we should look at this as her getting sort of a, a bad job. You know, it's funny, the Angels have Mike Trout. The interest in that position was that their open GM position was deep in terms of the number of candidates that they interviewed. But the perception around baseball was that that was a less desirable job than the Marlins job because the owner tends to interfere. They treated their baseball operations people pretty badly during the pandemic. So I think that, you know, she's not becoming the GM of the Yankees or the Dodgers, but this is not a terrible situation to find herself in. I think Helping a team navigate out of that period of rebuild is always challenging and delicate. And you have to know, you know, which are your prospects you hold on to and which ones you leverage into trade and when to spend strategically. And all of that is complicated by the economic environment that baseball finds itself in and that the Marlins find themselves in in particular because they are a low payroll team. They're very heavily levered. So it's not clear exactly what she's going to be able to do there. But there are foundational pieces here that are really exciting. One of the things that I found interesting, Meg, is that Kim Ang, it feels like, had almost given up on the idea of being a GM. I found a, a clip from an interview she did just this March 
with Hazel May of Sportsnet, and we can play this here, in which she talked about her career largely in the past tense. Yeah. And, well, let's listen to that, and I'll ask you a question coming out of it. You know, I think the most important thing, though, is that I did get those opportunities to interview. Um, I think I did make a good showing. You know, you work long, hard hours, and you want to obviously see your dreams come to fruition. But if they don't, my God, I mean, the, the most important thing is that I still had a great job, you know, still worked for a great team. I think we're going to add that music to all of our podcasts going forward. I think that would be a good idea. She's been out of team operations for about a decade, and a lot has changed in baseball since Kim Ang left the Dodgers as an assistant general manager. I mean, she came of age before analytics were a significant component in baseball operations. The structure of front offices has changed dramatically in the last decade. How does that, do you think, play into what she'll be able to do in Miami, and does it even play into her benefit? I mean, she's going to a place where she has connections, and this obviously contributed to her hiring. Um, Derek Jeter is the president of the organization. He knew Kim Eng from his time with the Yankees. Don Mattingly worked with Kim Eng in Los Angeles when he was on the coaching staff under Joe Torre when she worked there. So is there a a comfort level to her going to Miami, given that she's been away from, from the team side of the game for a decade? I think that that certainly helps. I mean, she's been very heavily involved in the league's sort of international operations. She has a ton of transactional experience. So I don't think that there's a a particular concern that she is sort of out of step with where the game is now. If you look at what Miami has done to their front office over the last couple of years since the ownership change, they really spent the first you know year or two after the ownership change laying the the infrastructure and intellectual foundation to be a modern front office. They hired a ton of people away from the Yankees. So. I think that there is a good sort of baseball operations situation that she is stepping into and the level of comfort and familiarity she has with senior people in the organization means that they'll probably operate as a cohesive whole. So I don't think that that's particularly troubling. That clip you played is is heartbreaking and, and not just because of the music. I think that it's, you know, it's really easy to focus on Kim Ang being the first woman hired into this role. She's you know, depending on on how you're counting it, the first or second Asian American in that role. So she she had a pretty strong headwind in a lot of different directions, right? It wasn't just being a woman. She was also, you know, trying to rise as, as a person of color within the league. So I am glad that the perseverance was able to last just long enough for the league to catch up to where her talent was. But yeah, it's She's a baseball lifer, and I hope that I ever display the kind of perseverance that she has because it had to have been incredibly discouraging to sort of try to navigate this process and come up short so many times. So she and her, you know, franchise might succeed, they might fail, she might do a great job, she might do a bad job. We don't we don't know. The important thing here is that she is qualified compared to, you know, other people who've who've gotten these jobs and that other women should be given the opportunity to interview for these roles and get hired for these roles as well. You mentioned that we're gonna have to learn some new names, Meg. Like where are we now in 2020 in terms of women in baseball who are going to have these next opportunities? Will this hiring change things materially for those women? Or will it encourage other women to get into baseball and think that they might have a chance to get hired now that Kimming has been hired? I always struggle with exactly how much the representation matters in a practical way in the midst of a hiring process. But I will say that when her hiring was announced, you know, I'm a woman who works in baseball media, so it's a little bit different than being someone who works in a front office or scouting department. But it means a lot to know that the thing you know is possibly true is literally true, right? It makes a difference to be able to say that, you know, the we have the first one figured out. I think that MLB has has a gap in its talent recruiting pipeline. When you talk to women in the game, they say that there is actually a good deal of opportunity at the junior level. And there are some women who have managed to ascend, but there is a a gap in sort of the middle management rungs when it comes to women's participation in the game. And so I think that there is still pipeline building that needs to take place because 
when you hear about these GM openings, and we always get one or two a year, sometimes more, you know, it's the folks who were sort of heads of departments, assistant general managers with other franchises. They are in a better position in the interviewing process than folks who are more junior than that. And so we really need to backfill some of those positions across the league. And it's not just when it comes to women. It's true of people of color. It's especially true of women of color. So there is sort of an important gap in the talent pipeline that needs to be backfilled. I think the place where a senior hire like this makes a difference is that hopefully not just in Miami, but across the league, you know, the, the mentorship of more junior women starts to be taken more seriously. I think that what we've heard from, from Kim in past interviews is that that responsibility is something that she is both aware of and takes seriously. So I think it matters to other women to see someone succeed in this way. I, I know women who work for teams who, you know, it was like their first unabashedly good day in the 2020 season when this was announced. It, it is deeply meaningful for them. It needs to be followed up with intentional and consistent action on the part of front offices and the league to make sure that it isn't just a symbolic hire, that it is the first of many, so that when, you know, the next GM opening comes up, we do know some of those names and are able to say, gosh, that candidate is really qualified and she is one of many. You know, I was kind of surprised, I mean, just speaking about the symbolic piece of this is that, you know, this was the first Asian-American general manager in baseball. And I just was kind of shocked that given the Asian influence on baseball, you know, um, that even that was a piece of this that had not been filled in by now. Yeah. uh, Baseball never ceases to amaze you with how disappointing it's been in its hiring practices. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when ownership is putting its thumb on the scale for Tony La Russa, you kind of realize how far we still have to go, right? (laughs) Fair Um, point. But yeah, it is... It is a historic hire for any number of reasons, um, and I think demonstrates how far we've come, but really how far we still have to go. The question for you, Stefan, which is, if we can broaden out to other sports, is it surprising that baseball was the first year, given that, you know, we're always praising the NBA for its progressivism. Mm -hmm. You know, Becky Hammond was at first and has interviewed for a bunch of head coaching jobs. They're, you know, coaches and front office execs in the in the NFL. What are your thoughts on kind of the broader landscape here and where baseball fits in compared to those other sports? Well, it's funny. It feels like baseball almost is sort of singularly sexist in the way it treats its sport. You know, basketball, women's basketball is taken far more seriously than women's baseball or softball is at higher levels. And in football, the numbers of women coaches is still really low, and that's without a single-sex corollary to play the sport. I don't know if it's useful to make this comparison, but I think football might be more sexist than baseball. But like, we—that's a debate that, that there's no winner. Yeah, they can they can slug that out. But baseball's inability to embrace the fact that women play the sport, and that softball is a sport that is worth encouraging. I mean, and baseball has certainly done certain things, but that is a reflection on how women are viewed inside the league. And its numbers aren't great, Meg. The Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sport, the Richard Lapchick group that rates gender and racial hiring in leagues, gave baseball a C for gender hiring last year. That's not great. The NBA typically gets a much higher grade. Only 95 out of about 500 vice president jobs uh, were held by women. Yeah. And I think that there was this hope. I mean, it's a hope that I've had that with the role that analytics has taken in the game, that there would be this opening up of opportunity, right? Because ain't none of us nerds played baseball at a competitive level, right? Like that was not going to be an important part of this. But what we saw is that the skill set that was identified with the analytics revolution tended to prioritize and sort of privilege white men. It was just a different set of white men. And it It actually came at the expense of some racial diversity also because the player pipeline to senior roles within the league started to not dry up, but narrow, right? And so I had hoped that the advent of analytics, which, you know, we don't have to debate all of the ways that was good and bad, but that it would sort of open up the the pipeline, go find the best, brightest young woman in the applied math department at the university down the street and see if she likes baseball and hire her to your team and have her build your models. And we have seen some of that. And I think that it has allowed some opening up, but it has also served to kind of 
solidify some of the educational and socioeconomic disadvantages that come with the resumes that you need. You know, I post job postings for teams at Fangraphs and I, you know, these people could work for NASA, some of the postings that come up. They do kinds of physics and chemistry that I don't know what all the words mean, right? So it is certainly something that a lot of different kinds of people are capable of, but what we have seen is that it tends to identify white, upper-middle-class, Ivy League graduates, you know, in some ways, Kang Meng's resume coming from the University of Chicago lines up really well with the the typical resumes that we've seen. It's just been with a different kind of person walking through the door. So I don't quite know how to solve that problem. It seems like there are some obvious and fertile grounds for recruitment for different kinds of folks in front offices, but baseball has not been good at capitalizing on that yet. I mean, it may not be possible to answer this question, but I'm just going to throw it at you. So the Yankees made her the youngest general assistant general manager in Major League Baseball in 1998. And 22 years later, she's a GM. Like, under what circumstances would that happen for a man? A man who was identified that early in their careers, you know, as a phenom, and then them have to wait 22 years. It wouldn't happen, right? I I mean— I can't imagine a circumstance where someone promoted that young isn't the next GM hire the following winter. Wow. I'm sure that there have been instances where, you know, someone hasn't panned out or they've gotten into a senior role and people have realized that the the young phenom isn't quite as phenomenal as they thought. But 22 years, I find that very difficult to to fathom for someone who is still in the game. I think that's a good place to end. But before we go, I want to mention that Meg's site, Fangraphs, have been very open about the struggles of, uh, you know, trying to make it during the pandemic. And you can subscribe and become a, a member. It's, you know, as little as $20 a year. And I'm sure Meg would appreciate that. But also you get a lot of great stuff on the Fangraphs site. And so it'll be to your benefit to subscribe and become a member as well. Yeah, I think that we've been blown away by the support that our readership has shown us. And having a season, as short as it was, definitely helped. But as we kind of stare down what we anticipate to be a slow off season, if you're in a position to become a member, whether at some of the lower levels or at the ad-free rate, we would sincerely appreciate it. We want to be there to provide stats and analysis and all of the great tools that we have for everyone come the 2021 season. And we can't do it without your help. Meg Rowley is the managing editor of Fangraphs, which you should go subscribe to right now. And she's a co-host of Effectively Wild. Meg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The worst division in NFL history was the 2008 NFC West, cumulative winning percentage of 344, 34%. As of Monday morning, the 2020 NFC East is worse than that. And it's not even that close. Your division leading Philadelphia Eagles are 3-5 and 1. The Giants, 3-7. Cowboys, 2-7. Washington football team, 2-7. A combined winning percentage, 284, 28%. Some fun facts for you guys as we start the segment. The NFC East has 10 wins cumulatively. The Pittsburgh Steelers have nine wins, non-cumulatively, <laughs> just the Steelers. NFC East teams are eight and eight against each other. They are two 18 and one against the rest of the league. Those two wins were a miracle comeback by the Cowboys against the Falcons. That was back when Dallas still had Dak Prescott and Dak Prescott's leg was still intact. Um, The other one was Eagles over the 49ers when San Francisco was missing, starting quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo and a whole bunch of other players. There are only four more divisional games left for this putrid foursome in the NFC East. That means there are not going to be that many more wins for any of them to pile up. So there's a scenario in which a four-win team will win this division. And since division winners automatically make the playoffs in the NFL, they'll be in the playoffs. And they'll actually host a playoff game as the number four seed. Joel, this is a storied 
division. That's the only division in the NFL in which every team in said division has won a Super Bowl. From before we were born up to the present day, this has been the showcase division for the league. It's the one with the biggest media markets. Well, wait, 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 wait. From before the two of you were born. I'm talking to Joel right now. From oh, I'm sorry. We were I'm not born. part of the conversation. Continue, Josh. <laughs> I said, Joel, it's always in prime time. The Sunday night game, the Monday night game, we're always treated to Cowboys. You know, if the Cowboys could play the Cowboys, the NFL would show that. But now what we've been left with is Daniel Jones leading the Giants to victory over the Eagles on Sunday, becoming, uh, in the words of the New York Times, the Giants are now the least inferior team in the NFC East. So where did this division go so horribly wrong? And why are the gods punishing us by making us watch this, this football? Well, first, we're being punished because we don't deserve football in the first place, Fair. Uh, let alone good football. So like in a season where the league is counting on its array of programming to keep things afloat until they can pack stadiums again, its marquee teams are just putting up these shit shows every weekend, which is great. You know, I mean, I, one thing that I don't miss about living in New York, and there are a lot of things I don't miss about living in New York, is that if you don't have Red Zone or NFL ticket you get stuck watching the Jets and the Giants. And that is, I've never seen a Jets, it's particularly Giants game that has looked interesting in my life since the 80s. Like, I can't, like, I can't, I can't, I can't can't remember a time, maybe those two Super Bowls against the Patriots, but other than that, anytime you see the Giants on TV, you just know it's going to be boring. Uh, Disrespectful to uh, Eli Manning. That's right. Well, that's boring. I'm sorry. But more seriously, I, I just think that, like, it's a quirk of this unusual season. And that's, you know, like they're the twin issues of injuries and COVID and extremely bad QB play. So, of course, the football team gave up on Dwayne Haskins and they continued to play Kyle Allen, who I always like to note got beat out in college twice. Like, first he got beat by Kyler Murray at Texas AM, and then he got beat out by Kyle Postma at the University of Houston. Left college early and still got drafted to the NFL. And I just, I still don't understand like the trajectory of Kyle Allen. It doesn't make any sense to me, but whatever. And then they had to turn to hobbled-ass Alex Smith. The Giants rolled the dice on Daniel Jones, and he's bad. Dak isn't playing anymore. And then you've got the Eagles, who have been, like, historically crippled by injuries. So that's why the ball is so bad. Like, if you look, I mean, if you break down football to quarterbacking play, because they're so responsible for the way a game will look and the flow of a game, the quarterbacks are so terrible right now. And then the, the Eagles themselves are just so beat up that it's impossible for us to expect much more than what we've seen so far. The saddest part about this, Stefan, is seeing everybody kind of talk themselves into the Giants. It's like they started the year one and seven. They've now won two in a row. They're <laughs> kind of up and coming in this division. The the most like notable play in this division all year was Daniel Jones like breaking free and like running very fast down the field before falling down on his face sort of the end zone. <laughs> a few weeks ago. But like, you can actually make a case for the Giants as the best team in this division because there's only like one unit in all of the NFC East that's any good, and that's the Giants' defense. And the Giants' offense is a little better. Daniel Jones had a pretty good game on Sunday. No turnovers. They scored points. They won. Was that the first game in his NFL career with no turnovers? That guy's a a turnover machine, as it were. But he's on the he's on the upswing, clearly. Yes. I mean, there are two things here. One is that in addition to all of what you just talked about, Joel and Josh, this is a crazy ass season. Also, teams just didn't have a chance to prepare the way they normally would, which is going to affect some teams more than others. And it's going to affect teams that get a lot of injuries more than others because the players that are asked to step up might not be ready to step up. Two, the Washington situation, you know, starting with the the whole name change in the summer through their myriad front office problems with Daniel Snyder to this bizarro world of Alex Smith starting and throwing for 390 yards, by the way, on Sunday. Granted, it was against the Detroit Lions, who, for all intents and purposes, should be part of the NFC East this year. They're that bad. They would be leading the division. <laughs> they would be leading. And stuff, I, just not to overlook it, isn't Ron Rivera still dealing with cancer right now, too? So and like coaching and <laughs> popping his yeah. mask down as necessary, you know? Yeah. Um, the whole thing is insane. And back to Alex Smith, on top of all of the badness, watching Alex Smith play football is really uncomfortable. So even if you're a fan, I think, of the Washington football team, 
there is still this this player staring you in the face, reminding you why all of football is morally dubious. I will say that the most satisfying part of the Washington football team's game on Sunday, which was really bizarre, and I happened to turn it on for the last few minutes, they tied the game on the worst two-minute drive that you'll ever see in football. 17 plays, pass interference, delay of game penalty by the offense, Washington. 17 plays in two minutes. That's impressive. (laughs) And then they score with 16 seconds left in the game. Plenty of time for Matthew Stafford to go far enough down the field, abetted by a roughing the passer penalty by rookie Chase Young of Washington and a 59-yard field goal by Matthew Prater. NFC East football, baby. Gotta love it. So the Eagles won a Super Bowl not that long ago. So this division is not characterized by total and utter incompetence for like a generation. There is... There has been some good football played in that division in the not-so-distant uh, past. They have been totally destroyed by injuries for years now. And, you know, if if you put them in one category, it's like the entire array of ways in which a team or organization can be bad is represented in this division. So the Eagles, you could say, like, there's some talent there, there's some organizational um, intelligence there, and they've just had such bad luck in terms of um, health and, you know, Carson Wentz can't stay healthy and all, all of that. With Washington, it's just total, or from top to bottom, organizational incompetence and dysfunction, starting with ownership. And that's going back decades. Then you have the Giants, who, you know, the general manager seems like an idiot, always <laughs> making bad selections. They bring in this coach who seems like a total dumbass, who's this like, I'm not going to name any starters going in preseason because I need to see all these guys play. He's like a special teams, former special teams coach. He doesn't have put names on players' practice jerseys. It's all this like dumb college shit. And this guy just like seems like he's you know, totally high on his own supply. And the fact that they've now won two games in a row, he's probably going to think that everything that he's doing is working. Where did he even get this from? Because he can't, he, he's a Belichick guy. Mm-hmm. Like, Belichick isn't a, isn't a dummy like that, right? He's not into that sort of, like, theater. Yeah, well, but it's of, not like you get... Belichick coaching tree is full of, like, it's pale imitations of Mangini in them. Yeah, I mean, you certainly don't get some sort of vaccine when you go on Belichick's <laughs> staff against being a, a, a <laughs> shithead old-school football coach who needs to scream. And maybe it's, maybe it's like being under Belichick, you know, for all those years... Like you have all this pent up dumbassery that needs to be released to somewhere to, your, to the team. Let me when you're in let charge. me just get to the Cowboys quickly Go because ahead. that is a that is a team that was promising going mm-hmm. into this year, yeah. and they just have a really top heavy roster. Everybody said that going into the year that they have really good players um, who make a lot of money, and after that they don't have that much. And Dak Prescott gets hurt. They've again got a lot of injuries, but they don't, you know, have anybody behind them to take these spots and, you know, at least try to keep, keep the team afloat. And so that was just like, they took a gamble on these guys staying healthy. They weren't able to do it. And this is what we're left with. Within recent memory, the Dallas Cowboys were really good, you know, like within this last half decade. And the reason they're not good anymore, I mean, in, in addition to Dak being hurt, is that that offensive line that they had that was, to some people's mind, one of the better offensive lines in the last, you know, 20, 20 They were credited years. for being so smart for building through the line mm-hmm. and not like drafting Johnny Menzel and taking a guard instead. And Right. That line got old really quick. That's football, right? It's funny you said that, Josh. You said, well, you know, the Eagles have won a Super Bowl, you know, recently, but like in two years, whole things can change. I mean, the Jaguars, you know, a couple of years ago were like a competitive football team. They were like a bad half away from going to the Super Bowl. And now all of a sudden they're tanking. The thing that's unusual is to be good for a long period of time. It's actually not yeah. that unusual in the NFL to be bad for a long period of time, but it's unusual to be good for, you know, many years in a row. If these teams weren't so bad, if this was another, you know, another year, if there was just one team that was like marginal, you could make a case that one of these teams should tank. You know, like, like they'd be like, all right, well, kind of throw in the towel and hope that you can get Trevor Lawrence in the draft. But nobody is, everybody's so bad that you can't like guarantee that tanking will get you anything. You know what I mean? Like but, you but, could all but Joel, end up But everyone kind of is tanking because they have to play each other 
and they're going to probably split, which is what's happened so far, right? Eight and eight intradivision record. And then they're losing to everybody else. Stephen, There's not Stephen, much more you can Stephen, do. Stephen, you have to split in the division. There's you don't no have way to, mathematically but, for teams. But everyone you, is you so bad go, that oh, they, they are splitting <laughs> is my point. You think you think the teams are going to somehow end up going like zero and sixteen against each other? That I don't I don't know if that if that would work. That that might break the laws. No, no, no. Of, uh, I mean everyone is equally splitting. Nobody is yeah. going two and zero against yeah. anybody else. So Understood. the division is in aggregate ending up at five hundred. Right. There's no guaranteed win or loss in any given week. Like you just don't know what the hell is going to happen in that division. But like usually there's one clearly bad team. But who is the clearly bad team in this division? It varies from week to week. Hmm. So who is the most hopeless team? I guess it would probably be Washington just because of the the Snyder factor mm-hmm. and the fact that they took this first round quarterback Haskins that they clearly don't believe in after like one year. It's just there's no indication that this franchise has any idea what it's doing, has any plan. And, you know, you could say with the Cowboys, all right, Dak will be back, and he's one of the best quarterbacks in the league. They could be good again. The Eagles have personnel and management that's, like, done it before, and so they could theoretically do it again. And the Giants, I mean, I don't I don't think that they have good reason to be hopeful. Actually, the fact that they've won a couple of games in a row and now people are happy, that could actually be the worst thing to happen yeah. to them because it could convince them that they have something going here when they really don't. But at least I would rather be them than Washington. That's an interesting case, yeah. I guess, I don't know. I mean, the Gi- you know, and the thing is, they're the Giants, not owned by Dan Snyder. That's right. The Giants' most valuable property, Sa- Saquon Barkley, is hurt. And we don't know like what that a knee injury will do to a running back, right? He may never be the same. Mm-hmm. Hopefully he will. But yeah, I just... That's a tough one, man. I don't know which team I would be going to be. You could make a case for the Eagles just on the field right now this season, and they're leading the division by more than a game. That they're the worst? Yeah. (laughs) I think that's fair. (laughs) So Um, I think from a fan perspective, if you're not a fan of any of these teams, and I grew up as a Giants fan, if you're not a fan of any of the NFC East teams, this is satisfying because... All of these teams are reviled mostly by each other's fan bases, so everybody loses. On the other hand, everyone is so bad, the fan bases think they all have a chance to win the division, so they all get pumped up about themselves. On the other hand, if they win the division, they're going to get mocked anyway, so it's this glorious, vicious circle for everybody who hates these four teams, which is a large portion of the the NFL's fan base. So only two teams have ever made the NFL playoffs with below 500 records. Both of them actually won playoff games, the Seahawks in 2010 and the Panthers in 2014. Beast mode. The beast mode Seahawks. The the beast quake run, yes. That's right. Against somebody. So (laughs) there is always, when when this happens, a lot of kind of consternation about how can this happen? Why do they get a home game? I think it's not that big a deal, honestly. It doesn't happen that often. It's funny, which uh, is, you know, a good thing unless you're getting run over by Marshawn Lynch. It's unfair, but like, I don't know. I, I can't explain why I get so mad about teams stopping the clock with with taking intentional penalties, but this doesn't make me mad. But it's just like, you can't, you can't make everything fair. And it doesn't offend me the way that some people act all offended when a bad team makes the playoffs. Yeah, if you're going to keep divisions, it's going to happen. Right. You know, equitably, you get rid of divisions and you just line the teams up the way the Premier League does in soccer. Um, but that's not the American way. So every so often, you're going to get a glorious batch of of tomfoolery and incompetence that is the NFC East this year. And just to make Joel's point, you know, if you look at the kind of inverse of the NFC East, you have the NFC West with three teams that are six and three. And the 49ers that made the Super Bowl last last year are below 500 because they've had a lot of injuries. Jimmy Garoppolo's been out, but who are the quarterbacks of those six and three teams? I mean, I guess Jared Goff is like kind of average, but they made the Super Bowl too. And then Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray are two of the best in the league. And so when you've got good quarterbacks, healthy quarterbacks, you know, all those teams have good, you know, skill position players and and reasonable defenses as well. It's like not anything like super interesting or surprising to say about why those that set of teams is good and why the NFC East teams are bad. If you can't mention Kyler Murray without mentioning the Hale Murray 
on Sunday. That was one of the craziest plays you'll ever see in the NFL. Yeah, I thought that game was over. I just averted my eyes, and then all of a sudden, I see, you know, DeAndre Hopkins on his back, cradling it. I mean, you know, people talk, the talk about hand size is overblown all the time, pretty much. Like, usually it doesn't make a lot of difference, but that was one of the rare times <laughs> in football that I was like, oh, that guy's hands literally helped him in that situation. Like, you could just see his hands emerge from the crowd and bring him in and hold on to the ball as he was being jostled around and going to the ground. It was, a, I mean, it was a crazy play. I don't recall what Kyler Murray's hand size is, but the dude was running Not to his large. left, running large. to his left, throwing off balance yeah. with his right arm to get that ball to the end zone about yeah. 55 yards away. This, I think, is probably, and we can end here, like the number one example that should always be cited when talking about how quarterbacks get too much credit and too much blame because, like, Sure. He like rolled out and threw the ball in the air. And then DeAndre Hopkins caught the ball in like a sea of defenders. And people are talking about Murray magic. I mean, come on. Come on, man. Hopkins Houdini. You couldn't even see DeAndre Hopkins. You couldn't see him. He was surrounded by three defenders. Yeah, maybe that's why we didn't get him credit because nobody could see him there. Couldn't tell who it was. Houston Texans, you gave that guy away for nothing. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the hot NBA rumor of the weekend, that being James Harden's interest in getting traded to the Brooklyn Nets to play with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. How good would such a team be? What is the comedy slash train wreck potential of a Kyrie, KD, Harden triad. Tiras contemplate these and other questions. You have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. The U.S. has set the daily record for coronavirus infections every day for the past four days. By the time you hear this, we'll likely be on our fifth straight record day. NPR put it this way. One in every 378 people in this country has tested positive for COVID-19 over the past week. The uncontrolled national outbreak has threatened to shut down our schools, restaurants, and many other businesses. It seems clear that our lives are about to grind to a halt again. But not sports. NFL and college football in particular have continued to play through the pandemic. In the NFL, they've postponed games, but so far not had to cancel any. Commissioner Roger Goodell said he expects to complete the season and play the Super Bowl as scheduled on February 7th in Tampa, Florida. The virus has taken a much larger toll on college football, where 15 games were called off because of outbreaks, beating the record of 10 the week before. We'll see what this week holds, but the Arizona State-Colorado game scheduled for Saturday has already been canceled. Also, consider that we're going to have a bubbleless basketball season start in the next few weeks. So, Stefan... I asked this question on Twitter over the weekend, but it's worth repeating. What the fuck are we doing? <laughs> We're making it up as we go along, Joel. We're pretending that sports are more central to society than public health or education, to name a couple of things. A few more bullet points that I wanted to mention. I mean, you did a great job there in that roundup. More than 200 NFL employees, players, coaches, staff have tested positive. That's a lot of people. Uh, one player has been hospitalized. Fans have tested positive after attending games. Coaches have refused to wear face masks as required. Players have eaten in restaurants and gone to big parties. Three teams have been or are about to be punished for flouting the protocols, including your Saints, Josh, for dancing maskless and eating a W in the locker room to celebrate beating Tom Brady last week. College football... I think it looks more and more ridiculous every day. BYU has played eight games. Utah has played no games. And they're in the same state. That's just bizarre. Uh, Arizona State, you mentioned, doesn't have enough scholarship players available to play last weekend or next weekend. The state of Michigan announced a three-week shutdown that includes all in-person college classes, but 
college football is exempt. Michigan defensive back Hunter Reynolds responded to the news on Twitter. He wrote, I'm happy we have the opportunity to keep playing, but there's no way to say that we aren't employees. And that's it. It's the illogic and the indefensibility of the whole thing, the absurdity of the whole thing. Pat Fitzgerald, the coach of 4-0 Northwestern, was asked on Saturday what it will take to contend for the Big Ten title this year. What you have to do, he said, you got to be COVID free. There's your stat. Got to be COVID free. Lead the league in, in COVID negative tests. College football is exempt, I think, is the phrase that you said that really resonated with me. It's this magical thinking around, maybe it's not even magical. It's like everybody in the sport and around the sport seems to think that you can set rules for everything else in a state, everything else in the country. And because college football is college football, and for no other reason, it can just continue on as it was. The SEC postponed four games, four out of the seven scheduled games this past weekend, including LSU, Alabama. Um, the commissioner of the conference, Greg Sankey, said he was shaken but not deterred. Should have been deterred, Greg. Should have been deterred, not just <laughs> shaken. I mean... On the one hand, you could say, like, at least they're postponing the games. That's the part that I that I find a little bit odd, Joel. It's like, you're the SEC. I think we could imagine a universe in which it was actually worse, in which they just kept playing no matter what. They didn't postpone anything. No matter, they, they ignored the test. They let the players play. Despite the test, they didn't even test the players. But they're doing it in this halfway sort of way where... There are rules, they are quarantining people, they are testing them, they're holding people out, but they're still proceeding and they're still adding weeks to the season at the end to make up the games. They're still allowing fans in some places. It's just not having the courage of your conviction to either not do it at all or just admit that you're going to do it totally because the doing it in this halfway way doesn't actually make anything better. I don't think it's better for public health. I don't think it's it, does, it certainly doesn't set a good example for people in these states or around the country. And so what you're doing is just kind of, I mean, it's not the worst possible scenario, but it's so far from the best that it almost might as well be the worst. But And, and every so often, Joel, the truth like leaks out accidentally. Utah's athletic director, a guy named Mark Harlan, said last week after another Utah game was canceled, I don't know where college football's going, guys. I really don't. Well, I mean, I think that's sort of a lie um, because, I mean, we knew that they were making it up all on the fly. And so I go back to that story that obviously now it's been forgotten, but they ran in the Washington Post on August 1st and they got audio of the meeting between SEC officials and right. players. One of the officials for the SEC said, and I quote, there are going to be outbreaks. We're going to have positive cases on every single team in the SEC that's a given, and we can't prevent it. And he was absolutely right. He lived up to his promise. And so that tells you that they never cared. They knew that it was going to happen. This is exactly what they wanted to, not, I'm not going to say that they, what they wanted to happen were games. They didn't care how it happened or who got hurt in the process. And they seem to- But do you to, find it confusing that, they're, that they are actually postponing games and quarantining players and when, when they do test positive? See, I- I wish maybe that we should get an attorney or something, because I don't know if this has anything to do with some sort of legal liability or maybe it has something to do with that. I, I, I don't know. That, or just you know, enough public relations to right. make them look like they're trying and they're concerned. Yeah, you want to be seen as if you are trying to prevent outbreaks, even though you're sort of helpless, but you also don't want to be seen as creating outbreaks, right? And and like playing in the middle of it would be well, like... Well, let's, let's take them at their word and imagine the best possible case that they would make on their side. Like, I don't think anybody with the SEC, a coach, a commissioner would say that they want anybody to die, whether a, a player or a fan, like if it, deep in their, in their heart and publicly, I don't think any of them would say or believe that they want anyone to die. They also want to maximize revenue. They're probably worried about losing all this money and people not being able to have jobs. They don't want to deprive fans or players of the opportunity to play this season. They want to make everybody happy. Um, and they think that there's like a needle to, to thread where you can do this in the safest possible way and make money and allow there to be a season. And there's just no recognition that in this year, given the circumstances we're in, it's not possible 
to do this in a halfway way and have it work. Like the thing that just is just so galling is the idea that they're going to be fans, whether it's mm. in college football or pro football or the NBA or college basketball, like all these people know better than that. Um, and so if you're going to, if you're going to say like, we need to play and we'll do it in front of empty stadiums and we'll like bubble people as well as possible. And we'll like make the TV money. Like I can understand that. Like, I don't think it's like the most defensible thing, but I, I think that you could make that argument. But to say we're going to like let fans in and we're going to encourage people to get together and obviously they're not going to wear masks. And then there's going to be all this like, you know, congregating outside the stadium be- beforehand. There's just no way to defend that. I mean, for the marginal amount of revenue that that's going to generate, like I just don't see how you could justify that to yourself, that that's a good idea. Well, we know better. And we had Nick Green for Slate talk to a global health researcher for our website. And he asked them about the plan that Golden State has to have half capacity home games, but to have that rapid antigen testing or whatever. And this is for the progressive NBA that we believe like mm-hmm. has some values compared to college football. Right. And the guy was like, no, this is a bad idea. Like, that's stupid. I would not, it's not safe to go to a game. But so all of the science is here. Like, it may be incoherent in some ways about like protocols or the way that you can you know, protect yourself. Like, it is difficult. Like, we live in a society now where we basically have uncontrolled spread. So even if you're trying right now, you could infect yourself. And I understand the limitations of that. But the NBA, college football, NFL, they're also just kind of leaning into it, like you said, by having fans and doing all these things that are sort of courting disaster, right? You know, there's no reason to have a half-capacity basketball game. Because, I mean, just... Bottom line, I mean, you're not going to get a home court, a home field advantage by having a half-field stadium, right? In normal times, we'd say, that's pretty poor attendance. No team really derives any advantage from that sort of thing. And you're going to make some money You're gonna, if, mm-hmm. if it's worth it for you to make some money. I mean, Stefan, maybe you can bring in the Ivy League here, which canceled all of winter sports after canceling all of fall sports, they're not going to have basketball or or anything else. I mean, all of this just feels like it's crying out for someone to be a leader and say, you all are insane. Why are you doing this? We can't allow this to happen. And just the number of examples of people in sports, whether college or pro, who've done that, is like we can count them on like two fingers. We can count on two fingers a number of people that have said that about our country for the last four years too. Why are we doing this? This needs to stop. And that is a fair analogy, I think. And, you know, the Ivy League has been sort of the canary in the coal mine for all of this. They were the first league to say they weren't going to hold their postseason basketball tournament and they weren't going to participate in the NCAA tournament last spring. And now they've said the same thing about their winter sports. And, you know, you can say that, oh, it's the Ivy League, it's a joke, sports don't matter. But basketball does generate revenue for some schools. And and playing in the in the NCAA tournament generates a fairly large chunk of revenue for athletic departments in the Ivy League. And as we've talked about, like at these schools, like a large percentage of the undergrads are athletes. Yeah. So it does matter. It matters to them. I mean, it matters and it does matter to the school, even if it's not like Ohio State or LSU football. Right. So if you want to look for leadership, I mean, that's leadership. The question is, how is the Ivy League articulating it in the broader NCAA? And do they have the ability to influence other people in the NCAA, leaders of the the big five leagues? I think definitely not. Well, except that let me jump in there. You say definitely not. On the other hand, look, Ivy League commissioners serve on, or the presidents of the Ivy League serve on all kinds of NCAA committees, including the NCAA Division I Basketball Committee in other roles. Yeah, I hear that. And I, I think, you know, kind of broadening it out a little bit is that what's most jarring to me is that these billion-dollar enterprises don't have a plan but get through it. You know what I mean? Like, I like is that... I don't know, do you guys find that disconcerting or not? The NFL, the NBA, the NCAA, all these billions of dollars at stake, they've had time to ramp up and prepare themselves for this and to come up with a good plan. And none of them seem to have a real contingency other than let's just figure it the hell out. And maybe that's just the reality of the situation, but it just seems like this disorganization is like really pronounced. And particularly 
in college. And I have to think that if players were unionized, if everyone were looking at the bigger picture here, that there would be more guarantees, that there would be more rigor in protecting these players. Um, other than like, hey, man, sorry, I don't, you know, you guys are going to have to go out there and get get infected. And that's just the way it is. But um, it just seems like we don't have, there's nobody in control. And I guess we've known that for a while now. But just even for their own sake, you'd think that there would be a little bit better planning, a little bit better protocols in place to avoid the sort of disaster it seems we're headed toward. And I mean, I don't enjoy any sport watching activity more than college football on Saturdays. And I have to be honest, like, I just have not found this season to be enjoyable at all. Like, I don't know who's playing week to week. You don't know what teams are compromised, you know, by infections or outbreaks or whatever. I do wonder if in addition to like the other like regret that they'll have about putting these players and the people in the communities at risk, if we're going to look back and this is going to be a tipping point for something else in terms of like the way people look at sports, because I've just really not been into it this year. And I don't know if you guys have felt the same way, but something is really off. Like even just in terms of looking at the actual ball on the screen, like it has not been enjoyable to me this year. Well, I think what's going to happen is you mentioned 15 games canceled. Um, you mentioned the record numbers of cases. We have Thanksgiving coming up and we're in this like horrible moment where the pandemic is getting worse and adherence to best practices around distancing and mask wearing actually seems to be getting worse in large areas of the country just because people are sick of it. It's become politicized in all of these ways that I don't need to get into because you already no. And so it's a recipe for numbers to go up from even the record highs now. And everybody's going to be indoors this winter. It's going to get horrible. And it's converging on playoff season for college football, playoffs for the NFL. I mentioned Greg Sankey talking about, oh, we'll add this extra week of games at the end. You know, Roger Goodell in the NFL, they're talking about contingencies for the playoffs, maybe adding more playoff teams if they can't finish the regular season. These two things, the like immovability in our kind of mind and the cultural calendar of football playoffs and the undeniability of what's going to happen with the pandemic, like they're going to converge and shit's going to get real. I don't know what's going to happen, but like it just seems hard to imagine that these games are going to be able to be played unless they compromise what little principle they've shown so far to like, as I said, they are actually postponing games and canceling games. And so what's going to happen? Are we going to move the games to March? Are we going to just not have them? Like I said this when we were talking about the pandemic, like back in February or something, like I can't imagine that like no, no matter what is happening in the world, like if we're all like encased in plastic or if like the, you know, any scenario you can imagine, I just can't foresee the Super Bowl moving off that date. Like the NFL just won't allow it to happen. But like, you know, it all seems kind of up in the air right now. The, the, the Super Bowl is not only the most watched television program in this country, it's one of the biggest gathering weekends on the calendar. Tens of thousands of people, apart from those who go into the stadium to watch the game, will go to Tampa to participate in this two-week run-up to a football game. Frontline health workers and Super Bowl Fan Fest attendees will be first in line for the vaccine. It's all good. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's the answer. Yeah. First responders, meaning first people to respond to getting on a plane to go to Tampa to see the Super Bowl. (laughs) Joel, you want the last word on football playoffs and what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a Corona bro. I'm rooting for not the coronavirus to defeat the country, but I'm rooting for people to finally understand that, like, we just don't have to do some things. We just don't have to do this. This this is year is an anomaly in almost every way in our lifetimes. And we just don't have to have the fucking sugar bowl, man. I'm sorry. Poland weed eater bowl is another, another matter altogether, John. Oh, yeah. Well, if this was the blue bonnet bowl, then I'd be singing a different tune. 
Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. In my intro to the segment that we did about Kim Ang, I mentioned Billy Evans, the first GM in baseball and sports history with the Cleveland Indians in 1927. Dude has a really interesting background. So there's a terrific Sabre bio by David Anderson that I got all this information from. Billy Evans, umped in the American League from 1906 to 27 in the dead ball era, called Six World Series, Four No-Hitters. He also wrote a, a nationally syndicated sports column while he was working as an umpire called Billy Evans Says. He said Walter Johnson threw so fast that he closed his eyes in self-defense before making a ball or strike call, which seems suboptimal for an umpire. In 1907, his skull was fractured by a bottle thrown by a 17-year-old fan who didn't like a call. Evans refused to press charges because the kid apologized and his parents were nice. And then in 1921, maybe the pinnacle of the guy's career, he got into a fist fight with Ty Cobb after a game. Ty Cobb was mad about a strike call, told Evans that he would fight him right there at home plate, but he'd get suspended if he did that. And Evans said, let's fight after the game. Quote, the brawl itself took place under the stands with players from both teams forming a ring for the combatants. According to some accounts of the incident, the fight ended in a draw and was the bloodiest they had ever seen. Cobb was suspended for the next game, which Evans umpired wearing bandages. Billy Evans, uh, after he was hired by the Indians, he worked there for a while. He was credited with signing Bob Feller. He worked as a farm director for the Red Sox, GM of the Cleveland Rams of the NFL, president of a minor league, GM of the Tigers, retired in 1951, and was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1973, only the third ump to get into the Hall. Josh, what's your Billy Evans? The ATP Tour Finals in London started on Sunday with no fans in the stands, no Roger Federer on the court. He's recovering from a knee injury. One player who is there is 23-year-old Alexander Sasha Zverev, who won the event in 2018 and who came within a couple of points of winning this year's U.S. Open, losing to Dominic Thiem. Last month, the German Zverev's ex-girlfriend, a Russian woman named Olga Sharapova, publicly accused him of domestic violence, first in an Instagram post and then in two interviews. One of those interviews was with Ben Rothenberg and published online by Racket Magazine. The story she tells is incredibly harrowing, and I should say that Zverev has called her allegations totally unfounded and simply not true. Those allegations include descriptions of alleged emotional and physical abuse. There's corroboration from contemporaneous WhatsApp messages and photos. At the 2019 U.S. Open, uh, she told Rothenberg, Zverev covered her face with a pillow and sat on her so she couldn't breathe. She managed to escape their hotel room, she said, but wasn't wearing any shoes, and some strangers helped her hide from Zverev. When she went back later to retrieve her things, she said, Zverev had dumped them in the hallway but had kept her passport. Rothenberg spoke to friends of Sharapova's, who said they encouraged her to get back together with Zverev in New York, quote, because none of us believed her, a fact that these friends feel very guilty about today. When she reunited with him, Sharapova said, her passport reappeared. Later, she said, at a tennis event called the Laver Cup in Switzerland, Zverev punched her in the face for the first time. In the aftermath, she told Rothenberg, she attempted suicide explaining that I just wanted to leave in some way because I can't stand it anymore. Sharapova told Rothenberg that she's considerably happier now, that she's left Zverev and has found an outlet for her story. Again, Zverev has denied all these accusations. He reiterated that denial at the ATP Tour Finals, saying at a press conference, that's not who I am, that's not how I was raised by my parents, that's not just simply who I am as a person. It makes me sad the impact that such false accusations can have on the sport, on the outside world, on myself as well. I truly apologize that the focus has shifted away from the sport. 
As Tumaini Carriol noted in a piece published in The Guardian, that was a shift in tone from what Zverev had said on court a week ago after losing in the final of the Paris Masters to Daniil Medvedev. He said in an on-court speech, I know that there's going to be a lot of people that right now are trying to wipe a smile off my face, but under this mask, I'm smiling brightly. I feel incredible on court. Everything is great in my life. The people who are trying can keep trying. In that Guardian piece, Carryall describes the silence of the men's tennis tour, the ATP, which has said that it fully condemns any form of violence or abuse, but is unable to comment further on specific allegations. There's also been near-total silence from the other men on the tour. In a conversation with a fellow player, Gael Manfi, that was broadcast on Twitch, Andy Murray made vague reference to Zverev's off-court issues, which hasn't looked good for him. And so far as I can tell, he's the only male player who said anything. Two women players, Daria Gavrilova and Nicole Gibbs, have backed Sharapova on social media, but that's all I've seen. When the Paris Masters posted a photo of Zverev last week, Carriol wrote in her piece, fans swarmed the comments to shame them. The tournament responded by deleting the post. Olga Sharapova told Ben Rothenberg, that she hasn't pressed charges against Verev and doesn't plan to pursue any criminal or civil action, that she just wants to say the truth. So what will happen now and what should happen now? Tennis isn't centralized like, say, the NFL. The Grand Slams in tennis are run by a different governing body than the other tournaments. It's also an international sport, which makes adjudicating accusations like these incredibly challenging. We've got a German man who allegedly attacked a Russian woman in New York and Switzerland. Even when leagues are centralized and when they're contained in one country, I don't generally support them creating their own justice systems. But the alternative, as seen here, isn't great either. It seems like the sports powers that be, and Zverev's fellow players, will do their best to say and do as little as possible about these accusations. So where does that leave us? It leaves it up to the media, I think, here in the U.S. and around the world to decide how long to keep asking questions and how much attention to give this story. Sasha Zverev is ranked number seven in the world. He's got a long career ahead of him. He's not going away. But if he and his sport have their way, these allegations will. That's good, man. One last thing that I didn't include in the piece um, that I think is important to note is that he doesn't have to play in front of crowds. I guess, I, I mean, I mentioned it in passing about the tour finals. You know, it's a good thing that they are not putting fans in the stands in the O2 arena, but, you know, he has been, you know, in this, like, strange tennis season and strange time, you know, in the world we're having now. He's been kind of going around the world playing in these tournaments without people there to cheer him or boo him. And so we haven't heard what that is like or what that would have been like. And so it's just a very odd time for for this to have happened. And, you know, I, who knows when there will be fans in the stands again. And I would have been very interested to see how the media would have covered it if they would have gotten more attention if these accusations had come out before the U.S. Open rather than afterwards, because there just is, especially in America, less attention paid on the sport, especially to players outside the big three on the men's side when it's not Grand Slam season. I mean, he's ducking public accountability in pretty much every every arena there is, right? That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.